Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Wilmot Dixon Building Knowledge podcast series. My name is Louise Roden and I'm Communications Manager here in the Midlands. In this episode, we're bringing you highlights of our recent panel debate held in Birmingham titled Net Zero Carbon, What's Stopping Us? Hot on the heels of COP26, our panellists debated not only the challenges of net zero carbon for the built environment, but also took it a step further by talking about the all-important how. Hosted by our Chief Sustainability Officer, Julia Barrett, the lively and thought-provoking debate featured insight from one of our customers, James Douglas of Lendlease, as well as Deborah Cadman, Interim Chief Executive at Birmingham City Council, Chris Clark, Director of Performance and Improvement at Scape, Belinda Morgan of Cundall and Tim Carey from Collider. We hope you enjoy the discussion initiated here by Julia. Over to you and uh, tell us about Scape and how you're addressing the Net Zero Challenge. Uh, yeah, Chris Clark, Performance and Improvement Director, so Sustainability Director effectively at Scape, Public Sector Procurement Organisation. Um, since 2019, we've put net zero targets in the frameworks we procure for the public sector to use. Um, two years ago, we took a view that we couldn't afford to stop uh, that momentum and we, we needed to get in front of it. So uh, we took a long, hard look at the industry and chose a route map we believe is one that's been set for us and we don't have to work too hard, especially on new buildings. So we took the REBA 2030 Climate Challenge, the Letty targets, as, as those that we think our supply chain need to be capable of delivering. We put that challenge to the private sector in terms of our procurement process. So we're trying to do the responsible thing for the public sector. We're trying to provide some leadership, um, but we're trying to be reflective um, and challenge industry at the same time. That's kind of what we try to do in the middle, balancing role. And, and we're on your framework. And, well, I was going to say... It's certainly a challenge. <laughs> we, we, uh, we've been told it was one of the most difficult bid processes that's been put to the construction market in the UK. Um, Wilmot Dixon scored the highest quality score in a procurement process we've ever awarded. Um, and I will not dwell on that because you'll enjoy it too much. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's news to me. So uh, thank, you, thank you for sharing. That's, that's fantastic. Now, Deborah, we've known each other we have. a long time, but great to have you here yeah, in your, you. your new role, six months yes. in. Um, so tell us about you and Birmingham City Council's ambitions for net zero. Yep. So I'm Deborah Cadman, I'm Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council. We're the largest local authority in Europe, as you know, second city uh, in the UK, um, and the 20th largest landowner in the country, which a lot of people don't appreciate. And a fifth of the city is green, again, which a lot of people don't appreciate. We declared uh, a climate emergency in 2019, just before the pandemic struck. And I think what the pandemic did do was demonstrate we, we need to move even faster towards net zero. So um, we have a 2030 target to achieve carbon neutrality. I think that will be challenging. Um, but, but interestingly, we're absolutely clear that we, you know, Birmingham is not a hermetically sealed bubble. So um, it's something that uh, we are pushing uh, a lot of our neighbours on as well. That we've got, I mean, it's bizarre. We've all got different kind of targets, but the reality is we've all got to accelerate our move towards um, net zero for a whole host of reasons. Um, and as the evening goes on, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about our, our ambition. But suffice to say, we're being very intentional about what we want to do. We're being very ambitious, but we're absolutely clear it needs to be a collaborative effort. And we need to get on with it. And absolutely. we need to get on with it. We do. Thank you. Now, James. Uh, yeah, so let me introduce myself. I'm, I'm the head of sustainability for Lendlease Construction. And Lendlease is a very complicated business, so I won't explain all areas of it. But I lead the charge on Lendlease's target to try and achieve absolute zero carbon by 2040. And I'm going to say now, I don't quite know how we're going to get there. And that's <laughs> part of all of this. It's about collaboration for Lendlease and trying to find the solutions. I also lead the charge on the construction business on eliminating scope one and scope two emissions. And we're making progress there, so that's not impossible to eliminate those things. And we'll get more into that as we go through the panel. Fantastic. And great to see Belinda here from Candle. So, 
Please introduce yourself, Belinda. Uh, Belinda Morgan, partner at Cundall uh, uh, here in Birmingham. And uh, we're consulting engineers. Uh, we've been driving quite hard for a long time now. Um, on sustainability. We have a, 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 one of our core disciplines is sustainability, so um, it fits in with um, our other core disciplines of MEP and civil and structural, etc., and then all of the other uh, specialisms. So it's, it's very, very important to us, um, and we um, became carbon neutral um, uh, in our operations uh, September last, last year. Um, so uh, we're already on that journey. Uh, driving quite hard um, to reach our achievements 2030 and it's really really important for us to take our clients along with us so we've been working really really hard with um, public sector clients and private sector clients um, globally basically but if, if I sort of focus on Birmingham we've got um, some major projects around Birmingham like um, uh, Three Chamberlain Square and Curzon Wharf projects like that. Um, we've been working with the public sector along uh, with Circular Twin and uh, Gen Zero. Um, so driving quite hard, helping clients that actually know they've got to do something but don't know what to do and how to get there. So they're reaching out at the moment and we're trying to help them as well. Um, we're, we're focusing on um, not just the key uh, sectors uh, like education and commercial that I think a lot of people sort of move forward on um, but there's also some tricky sectors as well uh, they need a little bit of help so um, we're yeah responding to some of the challenges in those sectors as well so yeah full steam ahead so fairly busy then yeah trying <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least my colleague Tim Carey hi Julia Hello. Um, hello. <laughs> uh, my name's Tim Carey. I'm Chief Product Director for uh, Collider, which is part of Wilma Dixon and owner of the biggest microphone in this room. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we, established, we established Collider um, actually one week before lockdown. Um, good timing for that. But we established it really because we know that the construction industry needs to change. Um, we know that we need to accelerate our rate of modernization, uh, embrace things like the construction playbook, um, off-site manufacturing, but more importantly from a sustainability point of view. Um, Ed talked about now or never, Wilma Dixon's 10-year plan, but we're quite impatient. So we don't have now or never, we just have now. And actually what we want to do is to create um, buildings that represent the best of Wilma Dixon's values today. And, from a net zero, and that means that everything that we do is net zero carbon in operation, with um, at least 20% lower embodied carbon against uh, relevant LETI targets as well. So really, how can we push the envelope? Uh, we wanted to do that with integrity, so we chose to use the Passive House standard um, to deliver our net zero carbon aspirations, and we might well explore that a bit later. But thanks for the opportunity, and look forward to uh, where the discussion goes. Great, so many hooks in there. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask a few questions that we've, we've discussed. You probably saw us having a chat before but encourage you to um, go onto Slido, submit your questions, but also if you can see them, like other people's questions, because it's a bit like Facebook and they'll rise to the top and they'll be the questions that I ask. So, so do keep an eye out on those questions coming in. But we've got private sector, public sector. How do we come together to ensure we address this, this carbon challenge? I'm gonna come to you, Belinda, because you had, you know, we were talking about it before and you kind of put me in my place. <laughs> Not like me. Um, I responded by saying we already are. Um, so we're working with um, a number of clients um, where the public sector and the private sector come together. Um, and certainly the, uh, the public sector have reached out and um, we've got involved with um, the projects, the sort of projects, so working with DfE, Welsh schools, so Gen Zero, Circular Twin, all those sort of um, uh, projects that we've been working on to help them um, get net zero carbon solutions um, closer to, if not, um, cost neutral. So that's been really, really important uh, piece of work for us, um, doing that with um, the public sector and the private sector, as I say. So um, Chris and I know each other from having worked quite hard um, on trying to um, uh, deliver uh, a solution, a model, uh, that we can move forward um, with the schools. Um, so um, 
it's right, I'm, I'm just conscious that we've got a couple of our lads here that have worked um, on those solutions. Um, yeah, so we're already, the, some of the local authorities are reaching out um, and, and wanting some help. Um, Defence and healthcare are starting to drive net zero carbon forward. Um, so yeah, work, working quite hard on that. Uh. And from a contractor perspective, I can only really echo that. Um, we were recently involved in a piece of work with the Ministry of Justice to look at how we could help them achieve net zero. So the partnerships that exist and how we can share knowledge is something that is very, very important. And everybody has their own, I will say this, everybody has their own interests and are trying to find their own solutions. But if we get into partnership and we follow the same pathways, we can achieve these goals and that's hopefully what we're able to do. It's early days, it's been going on at different levels for a while, but what we're seeing now is more and more where we're able to share our knowledge and also gain knowledge from the public sector. And that's really important to us at Lendleys. I think it is, and I think um, the word that you'll keep hearing this evening will probably be collaboration, because um, what we found is that working ourselves on net zero carbon and actually working with um, uh, architects and cost consultants has, has, has given us a pathway to a certain point. Um, but the big milestone that we, or the big step forward that we uh, made was when we um, started working with the contractors as well as a, as a complete a whole team, but actually got access to the supply chain. So it's once we got access to the supply chain that we started making real big strides forward. Mm. And Deborah, is that your, uh, what your, is what uh, the guys are saying, what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I describe uh, our endeavour towards carbon neutrality as being like a very complicated jigsaw. And it's made up of a whole range of pieces, but each of the pieces each of those pieces are really important. And if I give you a, a kind of example, so we've got 60,000 homes under our control that, that will need to be retrofitted. And uh, in partnership with Coventry and Wolverhampton, there's about 140,000 homes that potentially will go, go onto the market. Now, that, that will disrupt the market uh, if, if they all go on at the same time. So we need to be really clear about the supply chain which, which I don't believe exists at a regional level, maybe not at a national level. So we're looking at a global supply chain that we'll need to kind of create and, and work towards. And that will have to be done in partnership with others. Um, I, I'm, I'm also not convinced that the, the innovation is, is where it needs to be in the research and development. So there's a big job to be done about working with our higher education institutions and, you know, uh, UKRI, you know, you know just, just really accelerating our investment in, in innovation. And then, of course, there's the, the skills um, supply uh, as well. And, and I, again, I don't think the curriculum is where it needs to be in terms of skilling up um, our residents. And, and then, last but not least, there's, there's that big investment opportunity, I think. Now, whether that's domestic markets or global uh, investment markets, again, is something that, that we need to be intentional about trying to, to produce. So, so the public working hand in hand with private sector is going to be critical in, in making the picture out of those jigsaw pieces. Yeah. Chris, I can see you nodding in violent it's agreement. I'm talking about Birmingham declaring a climate emergency mm. in 2019, so 300 plus local authorities, most of the universities have done that. Mm. Something I've mentioned quite a bit is if it's an emergency, maybe we should start behaving like it's an emergency. Um, uh, one of the things I would observe in the piece of research we've recently done is around behaviours and the barriers to, to the things we need. Um, and one of the things that we've got to think really hard about is what matters um, at a very basic day-to-day -day life level in, in work. So we've seen the, the things we've all been brought up as an industry to hold culturally normal around cost, causing us huge problems. Um, and I'll take us all back about 20 years and talk about safety, and we, we, nobody now would make excuses about the cost of safety, and yet we're still making excuses about the cost of carbon. And it isn't expensive, but we're still pretending like it isn't something we ought to do uniformly. Um, so I think if it's an emergency, perhaps we ought to act like the forest's on fire not someone's going for a picnic with a barbecue. 
trying to get a right analogy in there. It wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> didn't quite know. But, yeah, After we, we should, to quote Greta, we need to act like our house is on fire. Uh, yeah, an emergency, and, and an emergency, one of the things the public sector does brilliantly is emergency management. Really, really does brilliantly because we, we bring multi-agency working together. We solve problems when they need solved. We get people out of crises, is what we do. Um, and that spirit is really needed. And that, that, for me, isn't there yet. Because we, we are still blocking ourselves with habitual things we've been trained to do as, as an industry, as all of us in the room, I would argue, are in that place to some degree. Change your behaviour is a massive thing. Yeah. Just say, do, do you know, I'm really impatient. I'm, a whole, I'm, I'm just generally impatient. But, <laughs> but do you know, how many more bloody pilots do we need to kind of introduce? I mean, I, I, you know, I think if everyone in this room put their minds to it, we, we would have the solution to a lot of the challenges that we've got. So it kind of feels to me that, that we're constantly, you know, agreeing to, to run pilots and passive house and, you know, and we know what the answer is. So I, I think we just need to kind of crack on and get on with it, really. Do you know, it's, I'm just, just seeing uh, the, the questions coming up on Slido, and this is, uh, you know, actually the top question that comes in. So just bear with me a second. Lowest cost is still a significant factor in who wins construction projects. Um, as is quality scores uh, are similar, how do we move from lowest cost to the most sustainable? And then there's a, a follow-on question. They, they just flipped over, so I've actually asked the wrong question. The real, the question, I, uh, the link was, this is the trouble with people liking, you'll now like the other ones and they'll go up. So the question I meant to ask was, <laughs> I'm not going to be asked to do this again, it's fine. <laughs> as an industry, why do you think we're not better at working collaboratively and sharing the learning mm. We do our own thing, not learning from our mistakes or from our peers. So, you know, to your point, how many more pilots? How many times do we reinvent the world? How many times do we need to test a new piece of innovation? How do we get better at that? Have we got the innovation we need? Have we, is there more learning we can do? Belinda, I can see you poised. I am, because there's two things there. One, talking about um, why don't we work with our peers? I go back a little bit further than most people, but I remember the early days of Procure 21, and they brought supply chains on board, remember the PSCMs, PSCPs, yeah, they, they, so the main contractors were leading the way, and um, they brought the supply chains in, and uh, it wasn't about one MEP, one architect, uh, yeah, one structure or whatever. It was actually bringing teams of people together. And I don't know if you remember, but we were actually asked to work with our peers and share our ideas. And we were like, share our ideas? It's our IP. Why, why on earth would we do that? Um, but then you soon learned, the minute you put an idea on the table, you got three, four, five back. So why would you not invest that idea to, to then debate another three, four, five ideas? And it's that classic case... It, I've, I mean, I've never been frightened of it since, since that, um, of actually putting even daft ideas on the table, because sometimes it's the daft ideas that stick and actually have some mileage. So I don't understand why we've gone away from what we actually achieved all those years ago, other than I think it sort of stunted when we went through recession back in 2008, and it stunted, and then it's taken us a long time to recover from that. Um, and, but we're now getting back into that mindset of collaboration again. And if we do learn to work together, there's no reason why we wouldn't work with our peers. Uh, we share our ideas. We love a bit of R&D at Cundle. Uh, so we're always testing things. We're always challenging things. Um, and, yeah, why, why would we not work with our peers and try and, you know, drive that forward? I'm sorry, I keep sitting with my back to you. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, that's a way of bringing you into. Yeah, yeah. Because I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, we've taken an established idea and developed a, a, a business on the back of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'd echo what, what's been said. I think, you know, the the word at the top of it was collaboration, and we need to be brave. You know, we can't we can't just sit here and be so enamoured about self-preserving our existing models of business that we that we hold on and we don't we don't embrace the future because when we look at the scale of the challenge out there we're not going to do it alone we've got to do it together and I think Deborah made the point the solutions all exist so we've gone on a journey to learn about net zero carbon to learn about passive house but fundamentally we haven't invented a radical new material that didn't exist before we've just found the right solutions and now are trying to employ those at scale and we need to employ those at scale. So we know, you know, 
in a, in, a, in, a, in a good year. You know, we're lucky if we build 250,000 new homes in the country. Um, but every single new home that's built today that's not built to at least the future home standards, we're going to have to go back and retrofit pretty damn quick. And when you think about, you know, there's already, so I'm just looking at my notes, there's already 30 million homes in this country that account for more than 21% of the UK's carbon emissions. So all we're doing is adding to the problem. You know, but we're not going to do it alone. We need to do it together. We need to be brave enough to challenge our own ways of thinking and not be so defensive. And I think it is, in, it is in collaboration with all of us. And I think a large part of that is also getting government departments to collaborate amongst themselves as well, which is what the construction playbook talks about as well, and making sure that we collaborate and we put our best foot forward together as well. And part of that is about sharing knowledge. And with all the tools available to all of us at this point in time to digitally share information and digitally share knowledge, there really is no excuse for us uh, you know, doing better than we are doing at the moment. Oh, it's great to hear because I'm, you know, we sit on a, a, a UK GVC contractors group and I always say I've got the best job in the company because I, I talk to all my opposite numbers and it feels like all we do is share. But well, I was just going to bring another word into this and collaboration is key but also transparency is key. Yeah. Mm. So understanding carbon, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should share everything that we're doing. We should put it out there. We should report our performance. We should say what's happening. And if we can do that, carbon will become not this differentiator. The thing I don't want to see is carbon become commercial. Carbon to become something that people put a price on. We should all be going into this together to achieve lower carbon solutions. And if we can share knowledge, um, that's what will help us achieve this. It's an overall goal. It's not every business does something different, but we all have the goal. And we shouldn't make this the commercial difference between what we're doing. We're all on the same journey, and we should share that to get to that point. There's also taking that collaboration a step further, and that's the early engagement. It's absolutely fundamental for me that you get the right parties in the room. And again, some of the, the biggest successes that we've had has been where everybody's come together. And somebody, somebody asked a question earlier about lowest cost. And there's a contract that we, we, we finished the project now, um, but there was a contract that we, uh, we had in Dudley for Dudley College. Um, and that we were appointed not on fees, they didn't really want to know about fees. No, seriously, it was, it was based on behaviours. And it was making sure that they selected, we had to go through like a, a um, sort of behavioural workshops, and that was part of the interview process where um, they had to make sure that they came up with a team that could work well together. Uh, so the fees were secondary. They were, they were further down. Like at the end of the day, we had a budget. We had to work to the budget. So fees were just sort of wrapped up in that budget. The client had his aspirations, and we had to have resource schedules. So you dealt with the fees that way. Um, yeah, a bit alien to me when first bid it, but actually worked incredibly well. Wow. And there wasn't one challenge that cropped up. And there were some big challenges that cropped up on that contract. There wasn't one that we didn't all come together and, and get over. So in terms of lowest cost, I'm converted. I don't think you do need to go for lowest cost. You need to get the right people in the room. I'm going to come to Chris because you're desperate to come oh, in on sorry, collaboration. Well, we, we, two things. Cost. We've been procuring on 70% quality for 10 years. We don't do price as the main driver of our frameworks because it doesn't work. Um, but I think there's a piece, we elephant in the room, challenge the contractor community particularly. Um, the biggest behaviour around competitive pricing and driving things on lowest cost is your buyers in your organisations. Discuss main contractors' buyers. Um, whose job it is to find the cheapest price, to make you the most profit. Um, and that is the barrier to innovation. Because if I'm a supplier creating a new product and you substitute me for another supplier at the last minute in a project, I'm not coming back. Um, but there's another elephant in the room, which is that if the main contractor had a model that allowed them to make a sustainable profit and didn't have to game the contract, then they might not make those substitutions. So we need to behave differently top to bottom. Um, we need to buy differently top to bottom. We need to buy with carbon in our minds. Um, and Belinda and I, would, we both mentioned this research project we've just done. We just run a piece of research where we used carbon as the currency of the project. We didn't look at the, the capital costs until REBA stage three, when we did look at them properly. Um, so we're within 5% of a traditional school price, driving whole life carbon out with materials that are available now. There's nothing clever in this build at all. 
It satisfies the DFE specs almost completely. The DFE might need to get real about certain things if they want low-carbon buildings. I'll leave that one to, <laughs> for another day. But, we'll action you after this. But, but the, but the, well, you know, talk about it. But, but the, um, the point here is that we have to take behaviours top to bottom through projects. And that, unfortunately, starts with the client. Because the client will get what they ask for. And if the client uses commercial substitution and decisions at the earliest stage in projects and they substitute people, they're not going to get what they need in this journey. So uh, we, we're going to have to look past the traditional models of lowest cost pricing at the point of award and building a team. That doesn't mean we don't look for cheap, should cost priced right solutions. It does mean we don't race to the bottom at the start of a project and take all the value out of the team at the beginning. It's really hard to work in a team collaboratively when you're not sure you're going to be part of it in two weeks' time. And that's the problem our industry's faced for far too long. Soapbox moment. <laughs> I think we can all breathe now. <laughs> but no, absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, if you set the conditions, you're going to get what you've, you've asked for, even if it's an unintended consequence. James, I can see I, you waving at me. I just wanted not to paint. It's not all bad. I am seeing the signs of people putting carbon at the forefront of their decisions. Yeah. It's happening. It's small shoots. It'll grow but we've just got to keep pushing in that direction. And that, that is the beginning of the science that carbon becomes one of the key factors for all projects. I'm just, I just want to bring Deborah in um, mm. and say, to what extent, as planning authorities, can local authorities help drive this agenda and, and, and get us looking and focusing more, setting that context to drive whole life value rather than capital costs? Yeah, so, so we're at a bit of a moment in Birmingham, aren't we? So. Um, We've got the Commonwealth Games next year, and I, and I think, you know, everybody in this room, if you've got a stake in Birmingham, I think you should all see that as a brilliant opportunity. Literally, the eyes of the world will be on this city, not just for 11 days of sport, but leading up to um, and beyond. And, and, you know, that's also opened up the city to a different conversation with investors and developers. You know, and, we, and, and some of you are in this room, and we've been having the conversations with you that we don't just want, you know, small site you know, one and done and you leave. It, we want to have longer-term strategic partnerships and relationships with people because we want to develop the city in a completely different way, in a sustainable way. Now, we can do that. We, there are carrots and sticks, aren't there? You, you know, the stick could be planning policy. Um, the, the, the kind of carrot could be a collaborative design policy that we all work on and um, and agree on. Um, so there are a whole range of, of kind of levers that I think we can pull to it to encourage kind of people. But, but you know, I, you know I'd, I would be really surprised if any of, the, of you developers in this room and house builders in this room are thinking about, you know, putting um, gas boilers in your homes in the next five to ten years. And it's almost criminal if you are, actually. Well, the so, end is in sight for that. So, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely right. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm impatient. We know what the problem is and we know what the solution is. So if we keep kind of building homes with gas boilers, then, you know, what's, what's the point? What are we doing? Yeah. You know, it's just, just bonkers, isn't it? But, but equally, I do appreciate that the supply chain isn't there, the innovation isn't there. You know, I kind of get that. So, so collectively and collaboratively, we need to kind of say, look, this is a problem. We've got power in this in this room and and nationally i would i would say to to find the solution i would i would much rather have a collaborative you know carrot arrangement with people who want to invest and build in this city rather than have to do it through a punitive kind of uh, planning process i think you get much more when it, when you you set a challenge and it's an opportunity and people collaborate together yeah, rather than you know well, otherwise it's absolutely. a race to the bottom yeah, isn't yeah. it Very and, and actually we are going to turn investment away and development away if we don't think that it's being done with good intent and with with a, a future low carbon um, uh, kind of state in mind you know we'll say you this is not the place for you you heard it here mm. tim did you want to yeah, Come I was in. just going to add, um, I, I, you know, again, with all of these things, I think it's about how can we create the solutions and the tools to, to enable the project team to collaborate and to make decisions in real time. I think often, you know, carbon is quite an abstract concept at times. And I think, you know, there's, again, there's no technological reason why we can't do this. So one of the things that we've been working on at um, Collider, it's not a sales pitch, but is how can we in real time integrate life cycle 
um, analysis and embodied carbon calculation back into the design process. Because it's a bit like if I go into IKEA and I design a kitchen and I don't like the answer that the, the design process is telling me, I don't get into a row with IKEA about the cost of their dishwasher. I actually take a different view and I say, okay, well, maybe I need to do something different. I need to make a different selection choice. And I can choose in real time whether or not I want to spend a bit more from a capital point of view to save over the lifespan of my kitchen. We don't yet have the opportunity to do that in construction in the way that we should be able to do it. And so ultimately then, you know, developing tools, which we quite happily share once developed, gives people the transparency to make decisions that ultimately lead to better consequences. The problem is, it's a bit like value engineering. What happens at the moment is we get to the end of a process and then we realize there's a problem and then it's often too late to turn back. So we need to think about how we collaborate earlier, how we use the tools, you know, how we become more informed as a team as well. So we've been talking about whole life value and that often, um, people are often talking about the life cycle cost, the operational cost. But we're going to see the, the transition, the decarbonisation of the grid. And I reckon by 2035, I think that's the UK GBC's um, estimation of when we're going to see embodied take over. James, where, give us your thoughts on embodied carbon. But bear in mind, we have... We <laughs> yeah. so, so embodied carbon, if you don't know the percentages of a building, think 80, 85, 90, 95... It's the biggest challenge in the construction sector. Materials, lower carbon options, no legislation in place to drive standards for embodied carbon, very little reporting of embodied carbon. There's so much that can be done in that space. Now, companies on this level are reporting those types of emissions and have targets for that. But there's nothing, we're doing that from our own strategies, from our own back. There's nothing driving us in policy. And I would say for embodied carbon, we need a policy intervention to actually drive performance in that area. And I'll stop my soapbox there. Uh, but Chris is going to jump on it with you. I'll just join, join you on the train. Yeah. Um, <laughs> th there are two, let's be honest, there are two things we should be worrying about, steel and concrete. And it's even worse if you're building rail. But if you're building buildings, that's really our problem and we should just accept it. And that's embodied carbon. So just to be really clear, we're talking about the carbon emissions from making stuff. Um, we buy all the steel. We buy all the concrete. If we weren't here, there wouldn't be any emissions. What are we going to do about it? And if we don't change our standards, the behaviour of the steel firms will not change. Um, if we do change our standards now, we give the UK steel industry a fighting chance of making net zero steel. Yeah. If we don't change our behaviours on embodied carbon in the next two to three years, we'll be buying net zero steel as a solution that is sustainable in 10 years' time because it will be made low carbon, but it will not be made in Britain. It will be made in Belgium and Holland and Spain and Portugal, and it will be hydrogen-powered and it will be low carbon. Our steel industry is dying on its backside because our government can't find a policy, but we can. We can just make that decision. And I, and I think we can be quite unapologetic about it because it's where all the carbon actually is so That's the same thing applies with concrete already. i'm sorry i can't help myself but you know it, it isn't it's not an elephant is it it's a lot bigger than an elephant in the room well, so. the demand side signal that we can create as an industry for lower carbon concrete steel aluminium glass where the demand we can create that demand and tell them we want it cop 26 happened one of, the, one of the silent things that snuck through was 40 countries signed up to net zero steel yep. during that and investing in net zero steel. Which countries was it? We don't know because nobody even published that fact. There are industry associations out there like Responsible Steel, Steel Zero. There's going to be a concrete zero to create the demand side pressure for this. Yep. And I would just encourage anybody who's in a buying position to leverage that we can create the demand for those lower carbon things. And if you create demand, eventually they come to market and the price comes down. We also have another issue, which uh, we were talking about uh, just, just before this started, which is there's a magic material out there, which is net zero carbon and uh, actually takes carbon from the atmosphere as it grows. Uh, it's oh, called timber. That, Tim? It's called timber. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, because of, uh, you know, at, 
and argue, I'll be a bit controversial, because of an overreaction after Grenfell from the insurance market, then it's very, very difficult for us to use timber in our buildings. And when you talk about things like the DfE and the net uh, gen zero targets, um, we need to find a way to re-educate the insurance market that timber, if used effectively in the right situation, treated in the right way, is a good material. Because otherwise our embodied carbon aspirations are gonna get so far and then hit the buffers. Um, you know, obviously it's paramount that life and property, you know, life safety is absolutely paramount, but we need to find a way to unlock that. And I think, again, that goes back to knowledge sharing and working together to collectively lobby the government and the insurance industry to make sure that we use materials where they are appropriate. Yes, well, I have, I have, we have got a precedent with the, with, with the insurance industry not liking it when things get a bit risky um, in terms of, you know, flooding those of you who, who, who may be involved in the water side of the world back in, you know, remember Easter 98? I don't think there was a, a part of the country that, that wasn't affected by that. But Chris, you wanted to come in. Why only the, let's not, let's not look at a residential problem in non-residential buildings. Let's not, let's not take what happened in Grenfell and take those rules and apply it to buildings that nobody lives and sleeps in, because that will be a hugely disproportionate thing to do. Um, I think Tim's right. It's difficult, isn't it? You, and you, you, can't, you have to be very careful how you say it. But. Yeah, we need, we need a, a, a systemic change, I think, that all parts of the system to come together. Um, the, uh, the, the next top question now, don't change it now, I'm reading it, um, is uh, how do we best ensure that effective designs are robustly delivered once on site? And that, that um, it may, I'm going to perhaps take a liberty, but it, it drew me to a point we were discussing um, in preparation this evening, which is um, if you're gonna robustly deliver something, you need to know what you're delivering, and that's about standards. And we keep talking about net zero, but what does that actually mean? How, how would you define it, Chris? Where, where do you think we should be going? Well, I wouldn't, because I'd use the Rebra Letty definitions or the UK Green Building Council's definition. Don't invent it again, please. That's my answer, because I'm not going to repeat it, because <laughs> look it up, don't make your own up, use the ones we've already got. So what we need to do is start aligning yeah. to... The, the, and, we've got the expertise. Yeah. And then um, an, an example of, of an iteration on that, it, um, Scotland have just published the um, Net Zero Public Building Standard in Scotland, which is designed to progressively take local authority buildings in a direction of travel towards where it needs to be. And it starts with operational carbon and becomes embodied. That is based on the UK Green Building Council's framework. It's not a new framework. It's not been designed differently. It's the same basis. We've really got to stop worrying about the definitions and just adopt the ones we've got because otherwise that's all we'll talk about. So we've got, the, my def take on it. We've got the definitions, we can measure it. Um, but there is an elephant in the room. I'm looking at Tim and, and those of you who've been on web webinars with me will know, will, he'll know where I'm going with this. The elephant in the room is the performance gap, Tim. You know, how long are we going to be building buildings that don't do what they say on the tin? How can we move on from that? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is one of the reasons why um, when we started off on our net zero journey for Collider, this is why we looked long and hard at it and then eventually decided to go for the Passive House standard um, for a number of reasons. One, it's 20 years old. Uh, it's been tried and tested on the continent across numerous buildings. The other thing is when you look at the data, um, Julia is absolutely right. There's an enormous performance gap in most of our buildings that um, get designed up here and deliver here or vice versa. Um, when you look at Passive House as a standard, not only is the um, predicted energy much, much lower, but the actual performance gap is almost non-existent. Um, I think the other reason, or the last reason, why we were really uh, appealed to it was the fact that you can't achieve it just by tinkering around the edges. Um, so you can't build or design the way or procure the way that you've always done it and then hope that you kind of bluff the certification at the end of it. What it actually drives is a completely different mindset. You can't go from a building regs uh, level of air permeability of five to a passive house of point two and do things the way that you've always done them. You actually need to change the way that you design. So you design around systems. You use precision manufactured products in the factory. You change the way that you prelim on site and you, you, you supervise the works and ultimately how you deliver it as well. Um, and actually, you design buildings that are fit for now rather than buildings that were fit for 100 years ago. So that's what attracted us to it. Um, when we went to procurement this time around and 
one of the reasons that Wilmot Dixon's tender is so successful is because of that performance consideration. What we've done, we've given clients a contract option which makes the contractor in a design and build setting responsible for that performance for three to five years. We're basically saying the construction contract should do that. We're not saying energy performance contracts should be used. We're saying basic building contracts should take that responsibility on. Um, what we're basically saying is mechanical and electrical systems are defective until they've been proven to perform at the level they should perform for as long as that, mean, that takes in the client's eyes. Um, there's another benefit to that. It gives them their business case back for the investment they need to make. You can prove your argument. You can reassure your CFO that the money you said you'd get back from operational savings is really there. So we, we try to make that happen, try to make it live, but it's challenging because it's not being done as a standard at the minute. So it's, but it's, it's, it, we've got to take a bit more ownership of those problems as a project team. Stop pretending it's the FM team's problem. We made the problem if it doesn't perform. So I think we've got to be a bit more responsible there. Absolutely. And Deborah, I'm just, um, uh, Chris has reminded me of a point, which is often when we, we deal with uh, public sector customers, there's a challenge in terms of that op um, op OPEX, CAPEX debate. And often, you know, when I was in local government, we talked about it being the place where central government got joined up. You saw the, 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 the taxpayer money went into central government, got divvied up, and then you, you can't com, you know, compare or combine. So if you're building a school, you can't net that off against perhaps uh, reduced energy costs that you could reinvest back into pupil premium. How does that feel from, from you know, your, your point of view? Is there any, are there any tricks we can, we can use? How can we help you? Um, so, so we're trying to address that through our levelling up strategy at the moment. So who, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, but, what is the acronym well, now? Well, <laughs> well, I say that. We're absolutely clear what it means in, in Birmingham. So um, yeah, it's, not, it's not just about investing in, uh, you know, roads and rail and infrastructure. It's got to be about investing in communities. And those of you that know me will, will know, I know this to be true right from our EDA days, that, you, you know, you can't have... That dates us, you really do it. I know, I know. You, you, you can't have strong economies without strong communities. So we're absolutely clear about it about that, we have to invest in that, which is why we're so excited about the retrofitting of our homes and using mm -hmm. skills as a way of levelling up some of, our, uh, some of our communities. And we're viewing a lot of this, if it's long-term investment, we're, we're viewing it as, you know, we'd rather pay more to ensure that it has a, a life cycle that's enduring and sustainable. You know, we're, we're absolutely kind of clear about that. But, but also our levelling up um, strategy talks about, you know, single pot, right. you know, so give us the money and allow us to then work with the private sector to leverage against it or to use it in a, a different way for us to decide, you know, how we spend it in a way which, which ensures sustainability and net zero. I mean, it's, it, it's absolutely not rocket science. So, so this, you, you as Birmingham or as the LGA are, are, are pushing government to, so, to take off those shackles? So we're from Birmingham. I mean, we hope uh, many others will join us in this endeavour. But, you know, we're part of this pilot nonsense again where we, we, we know what the answer is, you know, but we've got to go through these hoops of testing oh, stuff God, out. Yeah. <laughs> well, t testing stuff out. But essentially it's about joining up the dots, bringing pots of money together to address kind of youth unemployment. You know, and you could, you could assign that same principle to, to a lot of the things that we, we do, really. And, and if you look at, you know, remediating brownfield land, you know, mitigating market failure, you know, building, bringing in the infrastructure, you know, it's nonsense that literally, if you want to do that and regenerate um, a place in a sustainable way, there are at least 16 different pots of money for you to try and access, which is bonkers. So we're, we're trying to smash that and, and use levelling up, our levelling up strategy to do that. Are you, are you just feel violently agreeing? Or it's just, just really <laughs> the, the, I worked in energy commissioning in a local authority setting around schools and, and local authority buildings for 10 years. The, the, the frustrations with academies having the operational responsibility for schools but local authority or DfE investing the capital. Mm. We have a whole generation of schools built over the last... 20 years, which are probably 50, 70, 150% less efficient than they should have been. If the end user was part of the project team and had control of the revenue capex opex discussion, we would have done things completely differently. 
We'd have schools that are local energy and generation assets for villages. We'd have schools covered in solar panels. We'd have passive schools. But because we've chosen to, to make decisions on school investment solely on CapEx, we have not very good buildings, Junior. Yes, let's not have another swear word, Chris. Um, but yeah, I mean, an interesting reflection. We did some, uh, some webinars in the run-up to COP26, and of course, we had the Code for Sustainable Homes, didn't we? Back in 2006, and we got rid of it, rid of it in uh, 2016. And if we'd have stuck with it, every house being built today would be net zero carbon. You know, we do shoot ourselves in the foot and keep reinventing the wheel. I'm going to come to um, another couple of questions in a second, but the, the one thing I did want to make sure, because we're, I think we're, we're quite technical people in this room, and we like a bit of carbon and a bit of design, but um, the, the second theme of our strategy is building lives, and it's about you know, enabling a just transition through the journey to net zero. Um, and I'm you know, conscious that we're in, we're in Birmingham, and uh, you know, Deborah, you've already mentioned that you know, you've got um, a huge swathe of, of housing that need to be retrofitted. And I, I guess COVID has kind of shown us how unjust things can be. And it's often those that are least able to, to adapt or respond that get hit the hardest, whichever emergency we're in. Um, what, it, what are your views in terms of, um, you know, perhaps how we can turn that threat into an opportunity or, or, or your approach here in Birmingham? I mean, the, the film that you, you started with, I think, encapsulated it beautifully, actually. But, but in Birmingham, you know, what, what we mean by a just transition is there will, be, there will be decisions to be made about how people live their lives. So how they, how they live, the homes that they live in, how they work, um, how they access work, how they travel. Um, and how they, you know, I call it, you know, how they love, but really, you know, it's how they play, how they access leisure, natural environment, and all of those things. So, so we're, we're trying to be really thoughtful in, in Birmingham City Council and use those four lenses to think about how any action that we take doesn't... Um, doesn't have an adverse in, impact on our communities. So, so how people live and houses, so retrofitting, you know, essentially it, it is about ensuring that those who are you know, experiencing fuel poverty can live in homes where the heating bills are minimized. You know, so it's kind of things like that people who travel, you know, we, we want to encourage more people to use public transport, but the public transport has to work. Uh, we want people to cycle more, we want people to walk more. If they do want to drive with you know, things like the, the clean air zone, pe people will be encouraged to shift to electric vehicles. And at the moment, you know, a kind of the bottom of the range Tesla is still you know, 50 grand or whatever, I don't, I don't really know. But, but you know, you, you, you've got to earn quite a lot of money to be able to afford an electric vehicle. And then you know, the charging, access to charging points, the price of energy and electric, all of those kind of things we're kind of thinking about. And then, you know, how people play, how people love, how they access the natural environment. You know, if we are building new communities, we need to make sure that they, the natural environment is designed in for people's health and well-being. And we all know that through lockdown, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but having the opportunity to have a walk you know, in, in Norfolk or in Suffolk was, was absolutely beautiful and kind of kept me sane. But there were far too many people who didn't have access yeah. to that. And we're seeing the impacts of that now. So, so the future design of our places isn't just about the housing units or the homes. It's got to be about that broader environment as well that we yeah. need to be thoughtful about. And, and everyone needs to have access to green space. Great places to live. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm going to uh, go to the top question. Oh, hang on. They're not in order now. What's going on? Um, let me go to uh, one, the question that was top for a little while um, and just, just lift us back out of Birmingham up to Glasgow, COP26. Um, and a question to all of you, and, and I suspect you'll all take it in a slightly different way, which is... Um, what are your reflections on what happened over the last couple of weeks? And, you know, there were a lot of announcements and, and, and commitments signed up to um, announcements pre-COP from our own government. 
how optimistic are you that we're, we're going to achieve net zero? And, you know, you might even want to uh, suggest where we may need other policy interventions um, to help us on that journey as well. So I'll come to whoever waves at me first. Who wants to kick off? Chris, Chris is on it. He's on it. Only <laughs> because we, we did a bit of prep on this question. Um, <laughs> Two, two reflections from me. One, I was feeling pretty low about it until the USA and China finally decided to talk to each other. That was a gosh moment, uh, wasn't and, it? And then at the last moment, we're talking about the next COP being 50 weeks away. And those two things have lifted my spirits quite a lot with, with the difficult week that probably wasn't going far enough. Um, my personal reflection on it, um, the, the bit that hit me the hardest during the Young People's Day there was a, a, an Australian girl called Clover who spoke completely ad-lib. She's not a girl, she's 22, but she is a voice for youth. Um, and she spoke very eloquently about injustice. Um, she talked about young people staying angry. And I was listening to her thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, sister. And then I thought, I'm double your age. Um, and I'm not right there with you. I was right there with you 20 years ago, and I've done nothing about it, or not enough about it. Um, so I feel, I've come away feeling a bit guilty, a bit worried for my children who are teenagers, um, but also, I think, hopeful from the point of view of our diplomats are doing their bit, and, and, and we can all be very doom and gloom about this, but that kind of international diplomacy with that many countries is incredibly hard, and what's come out of it, there are some big positive things in there. Um, and we can make a difference, and we don't necessarily need to wait for that stuff to do it. So I'm... I'm I kind of got back to where I started, which was kind of optimistic and positive, but it's been a roller coaster two weeks, I think that's for sure. I, I thought it was a disgrace, actually. I mm. just, uh, you know, how much more evidence does the world need to take ac action right now? And I know in the, the next 50 months, 50 weeks, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, how many more natural disasters is it going to take for some of the development, developed countries to take speedier action? And, um, you know, I really worry that there will become swathes of this world that, that people will not be able to live in. And, and my real worry is people will migrate to other countries. And my real worry is those companies will close their doors. So, uh, you know, the, the whole um, geopolitical issues, I don't think, are taken into consideration well enough, really. So, so I'm, I'm not as optimistic as you. I, 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 did, I did love the power of, of, of youth, and, and it does give me some heart, because I know there are enough young people that will say, enough, we're not going to tolerate this, but they're not the ones in power making some of the decisions. So that does worry me slightly. No, they need to be holding us to account and driving Absolutely, us yeah. driving us to yeah. be angry. Belinda, let me come to yeah, you. Yeah, that, that's quite a telling, and th that's something that came out quite strongly for me, actually. Um, one of our young engineers was involved in the, in the industry day, um, and one of the big messages she came out with, and it really hit home with me, actually, was sitting here, I've been in the industry quite a few years, Years. And when we get round to 2050, I'll be long retired. I won't be. <laughs> I won't be around. But she was saying she's still got 90% of her career to go at this point, and come 2050, she's still got a percentage of her career to go. So actually, it's bringing the young people to the table. Um, it's 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 their it's their world. It's their it's their you know it's their life going forward, um, and they might have more impact than some of our generation are having, um, because we've almost sort of been living with it for a while, and we know something's got to be done, but not driving it. I, I personally, I'm with, I'm with Deborah on this one, I was a bit disappointed. I think there was a lost opportunity there. We could, we could, have, we could have sealed the deal on a lot more than we did. Uh, there were some good things came out of it, so I don't disagree with you, Chris, but I think we could have done a lot more. This is to be the only time, Chris, where you're accused of being glass half full and everybody else. <laughs> James, did you want to come in at all? Um, well, the only word I would use was I was unsurprised. I had very limited mm -hmm. expectation, I have to be honest. I've seen Paris, I've seen lots of them. You can go into those rooms, you can talk, but unless you come out of it and do something, it never changes. So I, was, I wasn't looking for big commitments at COP. But I'm more interested in what happens post those events. At Paris, not much happened. At Glasgow, will something happen? I have my doubts. I would push back to, it needs to be 
Change needs to occur at all levels, and we need to make the change, because I see very little change occurring at that level. And I would say that's a personal opinion rather than a Ledley's opinion. <laughs> Not a lot really more to add. Um, it's, uh, it's difficult, isn't it? So, you know, to pardon the pun, it's a cop-out, isn't it? And we, uh, but, you know, we, at the end of the day, you know, the only way we can, I, I, I suppose I'm an optimist. I suppose I believe that as a human race, we'll find solutions somehow to solve the problems. Um, quick enough. But we just need to work hard to find those solutions and work together to find them. And if our political leaders won't find that leadership, then we need to find the leadership ourselves. And, you know, do that collectively um, and put our best foots forward immediately because we can't wait. We, can, we can't wait. And yes. I think Chris said, you know, we have to, we have to practice what we preach. And uh, we can't moan at other people if we won't do it ourselves. So, brilliant. Brilliant. You, it's almost like you were reading the questions. I can't read that far. <laughs> <laughs> so, excellent question here from Anonymous. When are we going to stop talking and start doing, are contractors and consultants going to say no to working with customers who don't set sustainability as a requirement? That's exactly what we're signing up to. So we either, it's in our best interest to bring our clients along with us, or we're going to have to sort of let them go. Some people think that's, um, is, is, is that going to cause us a problem? Are we shutting the door on? I don't think so. I, th I, think, I think we've got to move forward. I think the clients will come with us. We've got clients reaching out, sort of saying, we know what we've got to do. We don't know how to do it. Can you help us? Yeah, of course we can. So we step up and help them. So I, I don't think that's going to cause our business any great. But we, we have to, by 2030, we have to. All of our clients need to be aligned. So we're working on it now. Yeah, making that transition. Anything anybody well, wants to add? One, one thing I will say is that's... In, in the, the way we've just done procurement, one of the things we were asking our contractors and our consultants to demonstrate they could do is to have that conversation. Um, I, I expect main contractors, as the most informed party about a lot of these issues, to have that conversation with the client. And I, I disagree with you on this one. I don't think we should back away from those clients. I think we should have a stand-up row with them. Would you walk onto a building site and leave a project manager in a situation where they were going to cut someone's leg off? Would you walk onto a building site and see a scaffold wobbling and not report it to the HSE? Get off your backsides, um, because that's an excuse for me, and I won't have it. And I am here with Wilmot Dixon, because they demonstrated the willingness, the ability to have this conversation, which is why we're all sat here. Let's not back away from that very difficult conversation. And, and yeah, we're not going to win all those conversations. And yeah, there will be some projects that we walk away with, with disdain because it's not what we want to be doing. But um, let's try and have that conversation first. Um, because it's next all about time education, isn't it? It is, it's and that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah we, can't, we, can't, we can't use clients' attitude as an excuse not to try to change them, is what I'm saying, I think. Mm. Yeah. One, one of the things that I, I missed earlier, sorry for bringing us back, we, we were talking about, somebody raised the question about um, how do we ensure that what's designed actually gets delivered. There's a project that we're working on at the moment, again, key one in, in Birmingham, um, where every decision that's made um, at, at delivery stage is not just about cost and programme. Every decision that's made, the minute we look at an alternative uh, manufacturing alternative solution is considering time, cost, and carbon. So the carbon assessment is running all the way through. Every decision that's made to look at an alternative has to be run through that carbon assessment to make sure we stay on track. So definitely moving up the agenda, and you know, wouldn't it be great if we get to the point where the cost is out of the out of the equation. I'm going to take us on a slightly different tack now, um, and uh, uh, there are a couple of questions coming from our, our supply chain partners. Um, and as main contractors, we have a very, um, what I'd call a very long tail. So within our, our, our supply chain, um, we have obviously some, some massive companies, but actually we also have a, a lot of SMEs. So how can, uh, how can we as an industry support um, the development of the supply chain, in particular towards innovation and reducing their own uh, carbon footprint 
and that of their materials if they're good suppliers and help get them to help us and help our customers you know so that we're all we're all in this together how do how do we make this a collective effort Again, one, we're looking at collaboration. We've all talked collaboration all, all evening at the moment. The other one is um, pretty much every business now is focusing on social value. And as part of that social value, certainly as a consultant, we, we're, not, um, we're not a contractor with a big supply chain behind us. We don't have endless sort of pockets of cash that we can use to, to throw at things. What we can do is we can help educate um, so certainly local communities, that's the big thing that we're, we're putting down as being our, our drivers, if you like, under social value, is actually sharing that knowledge with people that at the moment don't have those skills, in whatever shape or form that is, whether that's bringing manufacturers on board, whether it's talking to the local community and educating them, uh, whether it's, it's helping our clients understand a little bit more, be that contractors or developers or end users or the DFE, whoever, um, so, yeah, social value, I think, will help us to um, drive those, those messages home. Tim? Um, I'd add commitment. So we need to commit. Uh, one of the things that uh, is driving us in, in Collider is, is long-term commitments to supply chain partners. And obviously, there's a couple in the room. Sick either. Um, you know, because if you, you speak to any manufacturer, I doubt there's any of them that want to produce a worse product than they can do that's less environmentally sustainable, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not as good as it can be. But the barrier, whether they're an off-site manufacturer or a standard component manufacturer, is often investment in the factory, investment in the manufacturing. And it's very difficult uh, when, you know, all due respect to them, they're not as big a scale as we are, to make that investment. And often the only way that you can leverage that investment is by having the certainty of pipeline that enables you to give you the confidence to grow forward with you. And there's, you know, again, this is something that the construction playbook picks up. It's not about looking at a job, one job at a time. It's about long-term alliancing arrangements that unlock the commitment and unlock, unlock the value. And I think we need to think, you know, as customers, as, 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 as contractors, we need to think a lot more strategically and long-term about the way that we enter into our supply chain partnerships, um, because otherwise we're never going to break that circle. So, I'll just offer something from one of your competitors, because why not? Um, we've had a really interesting case study from um, Morgan Central, who have um, they have a policy now where if a supplier in their supply chain is unsuccessful on a package because of quality linked to carbon, they train that supplier having been unsuccessful. They take a decision that actually they're not going to leave that situation, they're going to give them a chance to win the next package, and that that won't be the barrier. So I think it's a very interesting model. So you sort of say, actually, we're going to leave a legacy, even with the unsuccessful bidders on our tendering. I'm not sure it's very cost-effective for them. I think it's a, it's a big investment they're making, but one they've decided they want to make as a business. So it's, it's a choice, isn't it? But it's, no, I mean, it's great, it's and, it, good, and good I think training. it's... Our experience, you know, back in uh, 2016, we started working with the, the, the Carbon Trust to do the Carbon Trust Supply Chain Standard, and we offered free advice right across our supply chain. And we got three mm. who, who wanted to, you know, were, were happy to work with us. And what was brilliant, I don't know if uh, any of them in the room tonight, but, you know, they made massive savings. We identified reductions in energy costs and uh, carbon emissions of 30 to 40 percent and generally they implemented 20 30 percent so it was making their business models more sustainable in both economic and environmental terms but actually what it was doing was making sure they're still around uh, with us um, to take the journey forward so um, that's really important but James I don't know if, if you, you want to reflect on the supply chain school because if you don't I will yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> so both Lendlease and William yeah. Dixon are part of the supply chain school and that's about upskilling and providing the tools for, the, for those companies who perhaps don't have the resources to move along on this journey um, I was just going to pick up on what Tim said you know the, the certainty that we can provide the supply chain as main contractors I'd also bring what we can offer to the supply chain, because quite often it's a transaction that way. We can offer things that we can back, and I'm not saying this happens everywhere, we can back ideas, we can support ideas, we can provide finance. There's things that can happen with the supply chain now. We have created an investment group for this in Lendlease, and that investment group is responsible for investing in lower carbon solutions. 
and that would be focused on our supply chain. What lower carbon solutions and innovation can that supply chain generate? Now, the supply chain school, and I will get wrong if I don't keep on the supply chain school level, is really about trying to give people the skills and knowledge to allow them to make those choices. I would encourage every organization to register with the supply chain school. Lend-Lease doesn't require it, but we encourage it. But I would encourage every organization to register with that school. It's not so much about, for people who have the knowledge, the courses or the material that's online. It's about the role you can play in driving that industry forward and the links that you can have within the supply chain that may realize a better outcome. And that's what the supply chain school is. It's not just there's an online portal of information. It's about the real work that we can do together in that school to bring everybody on the same pathway. Yeah, and, and a massive collaboration behind that with, uh, I think it's about 130 partners. Well, so that's almost brought us full circle and I'm really conscious of, of time. So I'm just gonna finish by asking each of the panel members, I'm gonna come down the line, so pressure on you, Tim. <laughs> Um, before I hand back to Ed for, for, for final remarks. If you could ask or lead, you know, ask people to go away from tonight with one message, what would be the one thing you'd ask them to take away? Um, so I think the heading for this was now or never what's stopping us. Don't let ourselves stop us. Yeah, that would be my message. Yeah, let's get on and act, Belinda. Embrace it. Embrace it. Work with it. Drive it forward. Look after our, our, our world, basically. Our planet. Um, we're not looking after it very well at the moment. And to our young people, and to our young people, bring them to the table. Get them involved, because I think, I think their generation will drive this a lot harder. Definitely. Get, them, get that passion. They get that anger. Passion. James. Definitely. Um, I'd summarise it as take action. We can all do something. Um, I go into design meetings for projects and sustainable solutions aren't always offered. Have a think about that. Um, we won't run away from it. The sustainable solutions should be the thing you offer first, not last. Deborah. Um, stop fannying about, really. <laughs> you know, just... <laughs> so, we know what the... Have, have trust and faith in what we know and, and, you know, from a Birmingham perspective, you know, work with us to make this city net zero by 2030. Chris? I'm not going to top that. Well, no. It's a great So anybody that was playing rude word bingo, <laughs> I've got a full house. Um, please join me in thanking our fabulous panel, Tim, Belinda, James, Deborah and Chris. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode insightful. For more details on our net zero carbon journey, please search for Wilmot Dixon Now or Never in your browser.